mentioned last week, last week, that these last week's psalm, this week and next week, kind of form a grouping of psalms that seem to have reference or relevance to three of the poetical books in the Old Testament. Uh, last week, uh, we featured the wisdom psalm of Proverbs. It sounded very much like that. This week, we see the suffering psalm of, of Job, and next week, uh, the life perspectives um, piece of literature, the Psalm 39 on Ecclesiastes. I had noted that Peter Kreeft uh, observed similar things in a series of compelling essays last week entitled Three Philosophies of Life, featured, and they featured three of the five poetical books under the rubrics of Ecclesiastes, A Life of Vanity, Job, A Life of Suffering, and the Psalms, or the Song of Songs, as a life of love. And we could add to that Proverbs, a life of wisdom, and the Psalms as a life of prayer. And so interestingly, these three Psalms seem to, 37, 38, and 39, seem to form a grouping that, that feature these uh, three of the poetical books in much the same way that Peter Kreft has observed as well. Um, he said regarding, uh, that is uh, Peter Kreft, who Boston uh, University is quoting a Jewish scholar by the name of Rabbi uh, Abraham Heschel, says regarding the book of Job and the life of suffering, God is not nice. God is not an uncle. God is an earthquake. We may or may not like the God who is an earthquake rather than an uncle. But our likes and dislikes do not change reality. If we cannot take the God of Job and the rest of the Bible... That is no skin off, uh, that, is, that is skin off your noses, but not off God's. We do not make the universe hold its breath by holding ours. And a psalm like this, along with the book of Job, brings a reality check into the nature of, of life. I've often noticed in Psalm 33, uh, Psalm 23, uh, that wonderful shepherd psalm that many have memorized, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The psalm does not say that God is going to navigate us out of the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of suffering. But rather, he is with us. There is, therein lies the promise that in our life of Job, in our life of Psalm 38, God is with us. He never abandons us. And that is a wonderful hope in those darkest hours of our life. I'm going to read Psalm 38, and then we will return to it and make some notice, notice some things about it. Uh, 
a psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. And here's where the psalm sounds very much like the book of Job. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it has gone from me. My friends and my companions, they stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I will confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous and they are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good do not forsake me O Lord O my God be not far from me make haste to help me O Lord my salvation the grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of God stands forever let us pray Our dear Lord and gracious Father, open our hearts to this portion of the Word of God. May we see our own experience in it, for it is indeed part and parcel to life in a fallen world. And yet, Lord, may we see the hope that it generates in our life as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose Wonderful name we pray. Amen. So the crux of Christian, and I would say more particularly, Reformed spirituality is a penitent heart, which is part of the reason why it is part and parcel to our public worship whenever we come together. It is so because it ought to be part and parcel to our private worship as well. 
Now, this is not to suggest that people are, that we are people who are to grovel in our sin and uh, uh, or are unduly introspective. There is a caution there as well, because we do believe the gospel of hope. However, it is expected that those possessed by the Holy Spirit, born of God, transformed from the inside out, will be people who have a tender conscience. That is, or what is said elsewhere, a broken and contrite heart. And we are told the Lord will, not, will never despise. And we call this repentance. Psalm 38 is one of the seven classic penitential psalms. Psalms that are explicitly psalms of repentance. The classic ones, of course, are Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. But this is one as well. And I trust you heard David's confession here as well. Psalm 38 also reveals both the reveals a pattern of repentance for us. And that's why it's so helpful and so forth. The Family Worship Bible Guide, which I always check out before I uh, preach on any passage, says that without the realization of our sinfulness, we will not feel any need of the Savior. The Holy Spirit applies the law of God to the conscience to produce a piercing conviction of sin, a sense of God's wrath, and a cry for salvation. And that is precisely what we have here. Here we have again a psalm of David, as we learn in the superscript. Some have thought that perhaps this is not to be read literally, but it could be that sin is like an illness with all of its stinking, festering wounds and so forth. Possible, but in my mind, not likely. It could also be a real, the real results and consequences of sin. And they are real. That's why our confession speaks not only of, of sin, but also its misery. Sin and misery, or its consequences. There is a little difference between this psalm and Job. Job is the story, the account of the suffering of a righteous man, Psalm 38 is the account of the suffering of a sinful man. Now, Job, when we say he was righteous, I put the quotes there, uh, and that he was innocent of the charges that all his friends thought he should be considering. And he couldn't imagine why God in his providence would be so cruel to him. Of course, the last chapter is kind of the clincher. It's also said to be a memorial offering in the superscript. Memorial offering is something to bring remembrance. Um, Repentance 
it reminds us that repentance is not a one-time moment. It's a lifelong habit. Because sin is a lifelong habit. God wonderfully transforms us. We talk about, rightfully, being born again. And yet, that transformation, though has outcomes and effects, it doesn't eradicate the sin that is deeply set within our hearts. That comes at the moment in which we are promoted to glory. The crux of Reformed spirituality, hear me on this, the crux of Reformed spirituality is a penitent heart. Contrary to secularism, brokenness and contrition are healthy dispositions. Mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And without it, we will never progress in life. The specific sin of David that is not mentioned here in this psalm, we know that David was full of sin. And yet it's not important that we know what it is. And it's probably better that we don't, because it then can be easily applied to any one of us in this room. It is important, though, not so much that we wonder what his sin was, but that we see David's penitent heart in the matter of it all. Because that's where the psalm becomes valuable. That's where his words may become our words. In the hymn, Sweet, Matter of Prayer, or Sweet Hour of Prayer, we sing in seasons of distress and grief, My soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. Psalm 38 is David's sweet hour of prayer. It is David's return after failing deeply. And so we look at this psalm today, and the outline is in your bulletin, around these three uh, uh, notions, a confession of sin, six consequences of sin, and three correctives, which map out our way back out of the pit of darkness. So let's begin with the confession. Verse 1, we read, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk deep in in me, your hand has come down heavy on me. David is feeling the conviction deeply in his life. And incidentally, verse 1 is almost identical to Psalm 6, which is another penitential psalm. He continues, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. So David recognizes that here there is a direct relationship between his sin and the physical ailments and maladies that he is facing. A comment about that in a minute. Verse 4, for my iniquities have gone over my head, Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. 
these psalms, these penitential psalms, supply for us both the disposition and the language of repentance and confession. And that is why they're so helpful. This psalm is a longer version of Psalm 6. Compare them at some time this afternoon. It features here a cry of pain, a plea for mercy, an acknowledgement of sin and subsequent misery. Sin and misery. There are consequences to a sin-filled life. And it features an expression of repentance and an act of trust in the one true and living God and the hope that he offers as Savior. It reveals that the God of wrath is also the God of salvation. As Michael Card said in one of his songs, We look into our judge's face and see a Savior there. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, we read, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But then it continues, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession of sin. Consequences. We speak of sin and misery. We speak of sin in terms of its, uh, the pollution of the heart which gives us a bent in the wrong direction, but we speak of its outcomes, its misery. And we speak of here, we have described the cascading effects of sin in much the same way as is described in Romans chapter 1. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but became Vain in their imaginations, their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into images of beasts and wild animals. Nature worship. Paganism. The Westminster Confession calls this the misery of sin. And we must be at the onset, we, we must realize that not all illness, not all physical maladies is a result of a particular sin. Some people just get sick. Some people eventually get sick. We all are going to get sick and die. Sin, sickness, all sickness is a result of the fall and the, and the fact that we live in a fallen universe, a fallen world, but not all illness is a result of a particular sin. But some is. Some are direct consequences. And in David's case, he makes a connection between sins that he committed and the illness that he is now facing. First, there is a problem 
we find here in Romans 1, there's a problem with God, a disbelief in God, a denial of him. There is no fear of God in their hearts, as we read in a previous psalm. Followed by guilt, illness, a sense of rejection, vulnerability on his part, loss of perspective, and the loss of the sweetness of God's word. There are six here that I would mention as we go through the lion's share of this passage quickly. Fatherly displeasure. All sin certainly brings about fatherly displeasure. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down heavy upon me. It's a wonderful conviction of sin as a wonderful gift. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit sent from God to awaken us that we are on the wrong pathway or we are on the wrong course and we need to turn into a direction that exalts God and his word. It has been pointed out that this is not punishment that is here, but what it is is rebuke and it's fatherly discipline. The Lord loves those he disciplines and those he will he, he simply turns over. And this was this is the terror of Romans one that God turned them over because they would not regard God in the heart. God gave them over. He gave them over. But if but if the Lord is is working like a worm in your heart, praise God that he may just be awakening you to your need to flee back to Christ where you need to be. Physical distress. Here's where it is very much like Job. And we needn't remind you of how Job suffered greatly boils and, and physical distress, and perhaps not the least of which was his well-meaning friends who were more of an irritant than a help. Physical distress. Here David describes my wounds. They stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day long I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. These are physical descriptions based upon his own foolishness before the Lord. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longings is, longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it is gone. As I said earlier, all disease, all disease is the result of a fallen world. But not all is the result of specific sins. So it's not necessarily if you are sick and have a, a bout in the hospital, uh, it's, it may not be that God, is, uh, God can use that to redirect you, but it may not be a result of any specific sin. But some are. Some do, as in this case, 
whether it is the natural outcome or God's immediate judgment that is described here, we cannot be certain and it's not important. David knows that he is sick because of his sin. And although disease results from the fall, it is not all the result of specific sin. Dane Ortland has said, It is one thing to endure pain. It is another thing to endure pain that you know has come from your own sin. Andrew Boner, Scottish divine, regards this as the leprosy of sin abhorred by the righteous. And clearly, this is exacerbated when there is no hope. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And in C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain, this famous quote is offered, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world to the need for the Savior. Fatherly displeasure, physical distress, vanishing discernment. He says in verse Uh, Verse 10, verses 9 and 10. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails. And this line, and the light of my eyes, it is gone from me. Someone has said that that the eye is the window into the soul. And when you see the sallow look of lostness, it breaks the heart. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks there, are, in chapter 18, verse 4, speaks of those seasons where God, whereby in God's providence and perhaps reasons unknown to us of God's withdrawing the light of his countenance from us. And it comes out in perhaps a troubled soul and a lack of momentary lack of assurance. I've always been compelled by Psalm 13, which is one of those laments. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will I suffer such things without you answering? And then he goes on to say, Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. When, when life is overwhelming, one of the things to go often is our sense of perspective, our sense of discernment. It vanishes. And David testifies to that, that in his sin and in the misery that followed, the light of his eyes, it is gone. And of course, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 36, and this most compelling gospel reference, for with you is the fountain of life, 
In your light do we see light. But, but sin, from our perspective, will tend to snuff out the light of God's countenance. And then life becomes very, very bleak. No, I didn't say that somehow you have fallen out of, you may have fallen out of favor with the Lord, but not fallen out of his scope of redeeming grace. And yet we can lose those wonderful gifts of assurance and the like. With the loss of such light, the light of God, the light of hope, we become bewildered in life. And the life that we live, the world in which we live, is a bewildering place without the light of God's countenance upon us. David also mentions filial abandonment, the absence of friends. We don't do really well being around sick people. Some better than others. Some are professionals at it. Others just are good at it. We should all learn how to come alongside someone who is suffering from cancer or some uh, from having stroked or lost some aspect of life. We ought to learn how to come along the... Because the tendency in human life is to abandon those we don't feel comfortable around anymore. David says... Here in verse 11, my friends and companions, stand aloof from my plague. Who wants to be around someone with stinking wounds and bedpans? My nearest kin stand far off. Family and friends, both are abandoning him. So he goes through his self-made trial alone when he needs the fellowship of the body of Christ most, they're gone. And that can happen even today all too often. For whatever reason, in Job-like fashion, his friends are repulsed by his condition, and he now stands alone in his misery with no earthly companionship to support him. Very sad condition. He also speaks of hidden dangers. When friends depart, enemies take their place. Those who seek my life lay snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin. And they meditate treachery all day long. Enemies are not only those who seek your harm. Enemies are those who seek to get into your head with the wrong ideas. They are those who bring you down under the pretense of their friendship, just like David's, just like Job's friends. His friends were really not friends at all. They were trying to fix something that was unfixable. They weren't directing him to God ultimately. They were trying to uh, presume that Job had somehow deserved what he was getting and filling his head with false notions. 
Ephesians 4 reminds us and suggests to us that when we hold on to anger, we give the devil a foothold in our lives. And as we're admonished not to let the sun go down on it, so it is with sin. Lastly, truth decay. Verses 12 and following. Those who seek my life are verses 13 and 14. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. What's he talking about? The word of God is not speaking to his soul. There is silence. For David, it is a deafening silence. He needs the word of God to bring convicting uh, a convicting message to bring the word of hope to direct him to the hope that is in his greater son. Perhaps this is the worst consequence of all. It's the demise of the word of God in our midst. John Flavel said the greatest gift that a nation has is the gift of its faithful preachers of the word of God. And when they are withdrawn, when the word of the of gospel hope is no longer rings out, it is as though God were withdrawing from a people the light of his countenance and the word of hope. Amos implied that such a famine is worse than a famine of food, or a drought of water. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of God. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Can you hear how how terrible that judgment is. Proverbs reminds us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the profuse, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. David recognizes he is not hearing the word of God. He is not hearing its correctives, its warnings, or its gospel hope. That has all vanished under the darkness of sin. But there are correctives. Three that I will mention here. In other words, there is a way back. There is recovery from the dark night of the soul. There is a way out of the miry pit, as it were. Even if that pit was dug with our own shovels and our own sweat and backbone, there is a way back. 
The psalm is a lament, a weeping, a sorrowful prayer. But unlike some, it is a lament that is not without hope. It is a lament that is filled with hope. David begins to see the answer resolve itself before his very eyes. For here we see David's prayer pleading God's mercy, acknowledging God's presence, as in verse 9, Lord, all my longing is before you, my sighing is not hidden from you. Expecting God's response, but for you, O Lord, I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. And anticipating God's grace. O Lord, my salvation. The first step toward correctives is waiting, waiting on the Lord. But you, but for you, Lord, O, o Lord, do I wait? It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. He prays that God would protect him from the the mental demise that comes about by the enemies that come into his life. But he recognizes, Lord, help me wait upon you. For we know from Isaiah that those who wait upon their Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings as eagles. They shall walk and not be weary. They shall run and not faint. To wait on the Lord is to turn all one's attention in faith and repentance to the one true and living God, to our only hope. It is, it is to acknowledge that I am deserving of His, that I am undeserving of His mercy, but that He is nevertheless merciful to those whose hearts are broken and contrite before Him. But we are not by nature patient people. So waiting is hard, as James Montgomery Boyce has said, waiting is hard to do, especially for us. We live in an impatient age. Someone has said that a hundred years ago, if someone was taking a trip and missed the stagecoach, well, that was all right. He'd get the one next month. Today, we get impatient if we miss one turn in a revolving door. Waiting on the Lord. Confessing your sin. This whole psalm is a confession of sorts. Verse 17, I am ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. Verse 18, and here's the clincher. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Words that are so easy to say and so hard to do. And that's where confession needs to become a habit, a habit of our life, to keep the channels open, as it were. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, they are many, and those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me uh, because I follow after good. 
There's every reason that the world gives not to turn back to the living God who is our, alone our Savior. But it begins with a confession of sin. And there we have to set pride upon the, on the altar of sacrifice. And we need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Or as our confession has said, we name particular sins particularly. The Beatitudes, Jesus, gives us something of a pathway as well. Blessed are the poor in spirit, which is nothing more than the confession of sin. Blessed are those who mourn, which is nothing more than a heart that is broken and contrite before him. And blessed are the meek, those who humble themselves in the sight of the Lord, who acknowledge that they are ready to fall. And God will give you a new hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from within. It comes from a regenerate heart that God transforms toward Christ. And finally, wait on the Lord, confess your sin, and acknowledge him. I would say, just to polish this off, acknowledge Christ. Verses 21, 22, David prays, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O O my God, don't be far from me. Make haste to help me. And then he confesses this aspect of his confession. O God, O Lord, my salvation. His last words out of this prayer, he recognizes where his hope lies, and it lies in the living God. And this return of David that we see here as he navigates his his way through sin and misery in his life is not only his return, but it's ours as well. It provides for us a pattern of the same. Remember what Job has said. I at the end of his at the end of his book, after Job had had uttered boastful things, listened and had his head filled with notions from his friends, he listened to God say, Who are you <laughs> to say these things? And Job was ready to speak these words. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now I see my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the whole of the book of Job, right there, those words. But they would make no sense if we didn't read the first 41 41 chapters, even if they seem laborious at times. This was David's sweet hour of prayer, where in seasons of distress and grief, he found that his soul would discover relief and would escape the tempter's snare, that sweet hour of prayer. Of prayer. It also provides for us something of what Jesus did in our place. 
Consider what Jesus suffered for us. He experienced the Father's displeasure. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Physical demise, not only his intense suffering, but to the point of sweating great drops of blood. Vanishing discernment. My soul is distressed to the point of grief. Filial departure. All his friends, his disciples, except a few, ran off for fear of their own lives. Hidden dangers. His enemies stepped in. There was no voice of comfort. Augustine would say it would be hard not to apply to Christ a psalm that as graphically describes his passion as if we were reading it out of the Gospels. All that David has suffered, Christ suffered on our behalf. And what was his corrective path? Resurrection. Three days later, the tomb whereby his enemies thought he was conquered, was broken open, and Jesus came forth. For us, for you and for me. And so when we call upon the Lord, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation, I am calling upon the name of Jesus. Because he alone, the Son of God the Father, is my salvation. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving God, we pray that you would stir our hearts the words of this psalm. Oh, Lord, how often we find ourselves here. Maybe not in its misery, but sin has its misery. Maybe not all of this intensity, but it's there. And Lord, this in some ways is a gift to drive us to our knees and back to the cross. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might see the glories of our Savior, what he suffered for us, and what he accomplished for us in his death and his resurrection. May we lay our lives before him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.